Brothers and sisters, we come now once again to this passage in Colossians chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 9 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's let's pray. Father, as we come to this word once again, uh, we would ask that an increasing familiarity with this passage would also bring with it an increasing understanding, an increasing appreciation uh, for the depth of the revelation that you've given us about the Christian life in the Apostle Paul's prayer. So we pray that you would bless us, enable us to Receive the word in all humility. Uh, help us to put what you have taught us and to practice when, within our lives. And may we be spiritually fed and content in the richness of your word above all things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin with the word mandate, which provokes a range of responses these days. Days that are colored with everything that's connected to the COVID virus and the pandemic. Uh, So to use this word in a message about something fundamental to our Christian lives, our identity, our purpose, could be a bit risky. That is to say, the risk might be we might be easily distracted in our thinking. Our minds might be drawn off to the political contentious issues of the day. But that is exactly why the risk in using this word makes the use of this word significant because mandate is a very strong word. And it's always connected to the idea of some governing power, some governing authority. And as Christians, we are intimately connected to such authority in the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So recall these words of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 46 which are based upon his claim to have that absolute governing authority. So he said to his disciples, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Jesus is saying that if we call him Lord, then we owe him absolute, unconditional obedience. So, in what we believe as Christians, and in how we behave as Christians, we have this relationship to this idea of mandate, the absolute sovereign authority of Jesus Christ over our lives. And we have this mandate about what we are to believe and how we are to behave as his people with the moral imperative of our necessary obedience to this mandate. Now, what Jesus mandates ought to be our deepest preoccupation over and above all of the affairs of this world. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul was very direct with his younger colleague, Timothy, on this particular issue. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, he said, No soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. So as citizens of the kingdom of Christ, even as soldiers of that kingdom, our lives and focus need to be on the mandate that comes from Christ. Now, as I said in the first message last Sunday, in regards to this prayer of the Apostle Paul, uh, in these particular verses, we have every reason to make the legitimate move from what Paul prays as petitions to those principles of the Christian life which are contained in and which undergird those petitions. So, in verse 9, in Paul's first petition, where Paul prays that God would fill us with the knowledge of his will of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, we saw that the underlying principle is, in fact, the Scriptures, God's Word. It's, it's God's Word that is God's own means by which he would fill us with the knowledge of his will, and it's through the Word of God that we gain all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, we said last week, the Bible is fully the manual for the Christian and for the Christian life. It is that manual which contains what we are supposed to believe concerning God, and then what duties and responsibilities and kind of life we're supposed to live as Christians, as God's children. Now we come to verse 10, and we're going to look at this first half. And it's not at all difficult to see in Paul's petition a comprehensive mandate for the Christian life, because Paul prays that believers would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This statement is our prime directive. It is our multifold mandate for living as a Christian. For it ought to go without saying that what Paul prays for, we must seek to possess and to own as that which is intrinsically necessary for who we are and for why we are as Christians. So once again, our overarching theme for this, this, this series of messages about the Christian life based upon Paul's prayer can be stated this way, that when we are faithful to what the Bible teaches us about who we are and why we are, our identity and our purpose, we never have the need to reset the direction of our lives, but simply to recommit to living the revealed Christian life life more faithfully. And as we noted last week, that revealed Christian life, looked at through the lens of the prayer of the Apostle Paul, can be summarized in these five principles. First, that we have the manual for the Christian life. Secondly, we have the mandate for the Christian life. Thirdly, we have the mission for the Christian life. Fourthly, we have the model for the Christian life. And then lastly, we have the message for the Christian life. And then today, I want to look at the second of these five points, which speak of the mandate for the Christian life. Now, to tackle the idea of mandate, I want to present a larger context, a larger context for this concept. In the broadest sense of the word, the meaning of mandate is that of an authoritative command or instruction 
to act or to believe in a particular way. Thus, there's a kind of an axiom connected to the meaning of mandate. For there to be a mandate of any kind, there must be some, by necessity, authority. There must be some authority that's attached to it, some authority that actually issues it. Now, it's important to reflect upon this idea within our culture and within the larger culture of, of, of Western civilization. Because of this connection between mandate and this idea of authority. So what I want to do is to give a, a bit of a history of this idea of mandate, first of all, as it's centered in the fallen point of view. That is to say, I want to say some things about what fallen humanity has said about mandate and authority behind the mandate. And then I want to co contrast that with the calling of this mandate that we have here in Scripture that's centered in Christ, centered in the Redeemer. And I think it's important because it'll take us uh, to the place where we can compare and contrast uh, how the world lives, what the world sees today as its mandate, what people see who aren't Christians as their mandate, and then how we are to live as Christians under the mandate of Christ. Now, I want to begin by saying that Western culture uh, in the last 500 years has increasingly moved back to a very old idea about the mandate and authority relationship. So let me just rehearse this for you. First of all, uh, think back to the Greco-Roman period. Think, about, think back 2,300 years ago. Within the Greco-Roman culture of that time, among the best philosophical thinkers, there was understood to be this connection between the authority of nature and its mandates, which is to say, natural law was the mandate of nature. This idea was strongly held that when the, within the cosmos, there was a reality that was true, it was objective, and it was authoritative. It, it governed how all things were supposed to function. Nature itself issued this mandate, this natural law, and for human beings, it was the highest wisdom to obey it and the greatest foolishness to disobey it. Now, this conception of the natural law is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2. It is the, the mandate that's evident to all human beings. So Paul says in chapter 2, of Romans 14 and 15, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, which is the law revealed in Scripture, when they don't have that law, by nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the written law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Paul says that by nature itself, even without the Bible, all human beings have this, this natural law, this mandate, this moral mandate about how to live towards one another, even how they ought to live in obedience toward God. Now, we have that happening during that period of time, Greco-Roman world. And then we have Christianity coming in. And Western culture then begins to enter 
what, what is called by, uh, let's say, uh, intellectual historians or historians of intellectual history, what they call the Christian era. And within the Christian era, the great thinkers from Augustine to Anselm to Aquinas to Luther Calvin all stated that this natural law, which the Greco-Roman pagans understood to be inherent within nature, that this natural law was, as Paul says, the law of God written on the human heart at the very time of creation. So, so the Christian thinkers, based upon scripture, said nature by itself didn't issue this mandate, but God did, and nature had to conform to it. So in addition to nature, God, through scripture, authoritatively published the mandate about how to live. And he even published it further through scripture with his covenantal people. Scripture added something far beyond the scope of natural law. Through scripture, only through scripture, God was publishing the way of salvation. But this publishing of the way of salvation and the moral mandate through scripture never demoted the authority of nature. It never canceled the natural law as the mandate of nature because nature remains the handiwork of God. Well, then we come to the post-Reformation era in Western culture, the era of the Enlightenment, what is called the Age of Reason. In Enlightenment thinking, God gets removed as the author of the mandate about how to live. God gets replaced by human reason, but not by individual human reasoning. Rather, the Enlightenment era was that the best of human reasoning by the best human thinkers anchors the authority to issue this mandate about human beings and how human beings are supposed to live. So the Enlightenment, or what came also to be called the modern era, we have first philosophy, and then we have science lifted up as the authority that issues the mandate about how we as human beings are supposed to live. Then we come into the 20th century. And in the 20th century, a new wave of ideas emerge, which are called postmodernism. Now reason gets dethroned as the ultimate authority to issue the mandate. Some of you may have read Francis Schaeffer and his writings. He once described this movement with a book title, Escape from Reason. Now, when this escape is in full bloom, it looks something like this. That is to say, this is how people now are encouraged to think. My own self, my own heart, not my mind, basically, not my reasoning, basically, but my own internal feelings about myself. Here lies the ultimate authority over my life. It is my emotional sense of self. It's, it's my feelings about my sense of identity that establishes my point of view. And this gives me the mandate about how to live and how to set or reset my life if I ever need to do that. This is where we are today. In our current times, people are urged again and again to look within, to look into their own hearts, their own desires, to find out who they are authentically, and then to use what they discover there 
as their moral compass, their moral mandate for their lives. Now, if you've seen all of the Disney movies of the past 30 years, you know that this theme dominates. It is there again and again and again. Every hero, few of them, every heroine, many, many more heroines in Disney these days than heroes, every one of them is told at some crucial point where decision has to be made, follow your heart. Make your most significant decision you can ever make. Look inside, look in your heart, follow your heart. Don't check with wiser people. Don't check with authorities. Don't check with nature. Don't check with anything. Don't Especially don't check with God. No, check your heart. Find out in your heart. That's the direction you're supposed to go. Now, but the idea about ultimate authority of the individual self to set one's mandate for life, this isn't just pop culture. It exists. It functions at the very highest level of legal authority in the United States. It actually functions at a level that is higher than the United States Constitution. And let me make that very, very clear. Let's go back 30 years ago, 1992. The Supreme Court's most decisive position with respect to abortion, Planned Parenthood, of southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. This is the decision that made abortion fully legal up through the birth canal. Listen to how Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy supported the court's decision to support the woman's right to abort at any stage of pregnancy, even the very last stages of pregnancy. This is what he wrote. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, Justice Kennedy made this statement as though he was uttering a self-evident moral and metaphysical truism. Even if the Constitution never makes any such claim about liberty, nevertheless, we are not to doubt but that, but that the ultimate mandate about how people are to live their lives lies within their own inalienable authority to define for themselves their own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. Now, many Christians and many non-Christian writers have commented on what Justice Kennedy wrote. And I've read a number of these things, but the most recent I've read was in Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. All of this goes to show we've reached this particular point, that when it comes to any mandate about how to live one's life, the authority-mandate relationship isn't to be found in nature, or nature's natural law, nor is it to be found in nature as God's handiwork, nor is it to be found in humankind's best reasoning, what is sometimes called scientific authority, but rather the authority-mandate relationship on how to live one's life is to be found in one's own heart, one's own inner feelings, 
that is often now called the psychological self. Now, I began this overview by saying that this movement is a movement back to a very old idea about the authority and mandate relationship. Now, why do I say this? Because today, our culture has arrived all the way back to Genesis 3. When the serpent challenged God's authority and God's mandate, he was telling Eve to make her decision based on her own liberty to define for herself, using the words of Justice Kennedy, her own conception of existence, her own conception of meaning of the universe, her own conception of the mysteries of life. Satan was telling Eve that she had the authority to make her own life mandate. You do not have to accept God's authority and God's mandate. You can create your own. You have the inner and ultimate authority to live a life that is worthy of who you feel you are and a life that is pleasing to you in every way. Now, we are at this point in Western culture. And by the way, this is the why I've been emphasizing since I began my earlier series on Elijah and Elijah, that the greatest forces within our culture are essentially pagan in their nature. Because this view of the self is essentially the heart of a pagan view of oneself. Now, I want to turn then to the great contrast we see in the authority mandate relationship that we find the Apostle Paul talking about here. And so he's calling our attention to the mandate that is centered in the Redeemer. And what a complete and utter contrast. The mandate for life contained in Paul's position is centered not in ourselves, not in reason, not in feelings, not in the desires and dreams of our hearts, but in Christ alone. And so we read Paul's petition in verse 10, the first part this way. Paul says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Or another equally good translation says that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. This is what Paul prays for Christians. And what Paul prays for, we must seek to possess and own as intrinsically necessary for who we are and why we are as Christians. And that's what makes Paul's petition translatable into a principle and in this particular principle, into a mandate. Now, let's break down what Paul says uh, by posing four questions. Who is the subject of the mandate? And what's the main action of the mandate? What modifies this action? What is the purpose of this action? Now, the subject, of course, of what Paul prays for, the subject is all of us. Paul is praying, what Paul prays for here applies to all Christians, all believers, so this, this mandate for what he has to say isn't designed for super-Christians or for full-time Christians or for Christians who are pastors and elders and deacons and therefore doesn't apply really to regular church people, regular Christians and so forth. No, this mandate, this petition and mandate, it's for everyone who would dare call himself a Christian. 
It is for all who would identify themselves as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all under this mandate with no exceptions. Because here is the reality. If you're not under this mandate, then you're simply not a Christian. You're rather unsaved. You're lost. You're actually under a different mandate from God, a mandate that goes something like this. If you continue to walk as you are currently walking until you die, then you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You'll be condemned. You'll be cast into hell forever. This mandate actually differentiates truly Christians from all other people. True Christians understand the mandate. We understand the assignment. We know this applies to us. Now, Secondly, because it's a mandate, there's a, there's a main action, and that main action comes in the form of a command. And the command is to walk. Or it can also be properly translated to live your life. Because what we're talking about here in the, in the word in the Greek, the peripateto word here, is a figure of speech. It's, it's an idiom. But it's the same idiom in English as it is in the Greek. Which is to say, you can ask somebody something like this. Well, what is your walk in life? And we mean by this, what defines your life? What's your calling in life? How do you live your life? What manner do you live your life? Because this idea of walk, whether, in the, whether it's in the Greek or in English, is all about what defines your life most essentially. So the command is simply this to us. Live our life. And it's comprehensive. It means the whole of our lives, not the spare moments. Not the leisure time, not our time at home compared to our time at work, not just Sundays and Wednesday night Christian meetings, but the whole of our lives. So the mandate really amounts to this. Walk in all of your life this way. Thirdly, this action's modified. It's defined more specifically. In Paul's own words, what's definitional here is worthy of the Lord. Now, I wanted to understand that better, so I looked at six different translations besides looking at the Greek. These six different translations all have the same exact phrase in English. So, New American Standard, the, the NIV, the, the uh, King James, the New King James, uh, the Lexem Bible Translate all say, worthy of the Lord. We are to live our lives, all of our lives, every aspect of our lives in a manner that is worthy of Christ as our Lord. This is an incredibly high standard. In fact, according to this highest standard, the only life that is intrinsically worthy of Christ is a life of perfect righteousness. If we were living under the law, if the only thing that defined our relationship with God was the perfect law of righteousness, then this mandate would crush us. For the law says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. None of us could ever come close. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, as Paul tells us, 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We do not live under the law. Rather, again, in the words of the Apostle Paul, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, as Paul also says, on behalf of each of us who is a believer, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is this manner of life that is worthy of Christ? It, it, it can't be telling us that you and I have to live a life that's perfectly righteous. That would put us back under the law. No, the answer is to find ourselves under the gospel and the grace of the gospel. So the first thing it means is this. To live a life that's worthy of Christ is to live by faith in Christ as the Son of God who gave himself for us. And this means we know that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it means first and foremost. But secondly, it means that we have this treasure, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are jars of clay. It is part of what is worthy of Christ to walk with him knowing we are jars of clay. Knowing that we can't live for Christ without the power that comes from Christ to live for him. This is why we must abide in Christ because Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. It is why we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God himself who is at work within us to will and to do his good pleasure. Living conscious dependence upon Christ is the way in which we walk worthy of Christ. Thirdly, Paul would also describe it this way in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, fully and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul says, present yourselves virtually daily as your first act of sacrificial worship. And then don't conform or remain conformed to the patterns of this world. And then thirdly, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That renewal that we know comes about when God fills us with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is, transforming our minds, renewing our minds through his word. God sanctifying us, God transforming us by his word, which is the truth knowing it's the Holy Spirit 
who works in us as believers to bring all of these things about. So briefly, that's what it's going to look like to walk worthy of Christ. But fourthly, what is the ultimate purpose of this action? What is the mandate's final purpose? Well, the mandate is directed toward Christ, our Lord, with one specific goal and purpose, to be fully pleasing to him or to please him in every way. This is diametrically opposite to our culture. Our culture seeks to catechize us and our children to think another way, to think, in fact, like this, that our chief end is actually to promote and please ourselves and to find our own happiness. We're told repeatedly that the best life in this life is one in which we are able to live out our own personal desires and dreams and sense of identity. But the mandate of Christ says otherwise. It says we are to set our lives on pleasing Christ in every way. It is the centering of our dreams, our desires, our identity on Christ. And it's that which saves us from destroying ourselves and destroying others. We are watching our culture slowly implode as every sense of the world and the way the world is, the way God designed it, loses any kind of moral authority for the way people choose to act and behave. Everything is moving more and more, encouraging people to find the center of all life in one's own sense of oneself. Which, stepping back and watching the way in which this plays out, self-centered people who are encouraged to travel this narcissistic path destroy themselves and destroy all those who are closely connected to them. For us, it's vital that we see the basic mandate that is promoted by the culture. It's vital for us to see this most radical vision of self that we can possibly imagine. It's vital to understand that this vision of self rejects the authority of God, even the authority of nature, even the authority of the natural law that God has put into nature and instead privileges the idea that every person has the liberty to define for themselves the meaning and mystery of life. So that if your vision for life last year didn't work out, 2020, do a reset. Redefine who you are. Your own heart is your manual for life. And your own self gives you the mandate in terms of how to live. But we, as Christians, must not conform to the patterns of this world. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let us keep praying that God would fill us 
with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and insight so that we can live a life that is worthy of Christ in order to please him in every way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, make us like the men of Issachar who were well able to understand the times in which they lived so that we can follow Christ faithfully, that we can give ourselves over to him constantly, that we can live lives that are worthy of him by faith and dependence upon him, giving ourselves over as living sacrifices, conforming not to the self-centeredness of this world's patterns, but having our minds transformed always with the vision of Christ, our hearts made hunger and thirsting for Christ so that we can live in every way in ways that are pleasing to him. Enable us, Lord, to do so in these very, very challenging times that we can live for Christ, that we can live under his mandate, that we can glorify God in all that we are, in all that we would be. In Jesus' name, amen.